0: Created live on Fireside. Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next evolution in professional development in higher education every week it is my honor to bring you higher education thought leaders topics of note current trends and new information to ponder shows are replayed on apple podcasts spotify podcasts iHeartRadio radio podcasts subscribe rate share on your favorite podcast app the beyond transfer policy advisory board otherwise known as PAP has issued a series of white papers referred to as No Easy Answers. The PAB is a group of 12 expert practitioners who are laser focused on equity and understanding and how uh, complex transfer and credit mobility are. The series highlights several challenges to the transfer process and digs deep into the layers of questionable business practices that have become standard in higher education. This three-part pod series uh, will bring together PAB members who are writers and contributors to the white papers, and we will unpack their findings and recommendations. Today is the final episode in this three-part series, and we are going to focus on students and how the promise of transfer doesn't line up with the reality. The students today moving in and out of work and learning experiences at a higher rate, it is imperative that the transfer process be one that supports student outcomes. Uh, today I am joined by authors Shana Smith, Jaggers and Marty Alvarado. Um, they were both on previous episodes and I'm thrilled to have you both back. And now that we've gotten through our, uh, our audiovisual challenges, it's great to see you both. And Shana, it just occurred to me when you were able to jump on it's because we had the other video camera on for your Zoom. So like I was like, oh, there you go. It doesn't want to do two things at once. One of these days, these computers will do what we want them to do and not just what they want to do. Okay. well, I want to thank both of you for being here. Uh, Marty is in sunny California. I am in hazy Massachusetts and Shauna is also in a hazy state of Ohio. Um, but hopefully my, my I'm clear up here. The, what's happening outside is not impacting the noggin today. So Marty, please reintroduce yourself to our audience. Where are you calling in from and how did you get involved with this uh, project? And then Sean, I'm going to send it over to you.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Laura. Uh, I'm Marty Alvarado. Uh, I'm the Vice President for Post-Secondary Education and Training at JFF. Uh, my initial uh, engagement with the advisory was uh, during my time as the Executive Vice Chancellor at the California Community College Chancellor's Office, where I oversaw our many of our um, transfer initiatives for the California Community Colleges. Excited to be here and um, thoroughly impressed with this advisory
0: you guys are doing amazing work. Shauna, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved.
2: Uh, so I'm Shauna Smith-Jaggers. I am an assistant vice provost at The Ohio State University, and I run the Student Success Research Lab here. Uh, so we try to identify challenges to student success and potential solutions to those challenges, um, how effective they are, and um, help support scale up and implementation uh, across the university. So. Um, transfer students are one of the areas uh, that we focus on in our research. And um, prior to Ohio State, I worked for the Community College Research Center, uh, which focuses on um, improving the success of community college students uh, nationwide. Uh, And so there's a a lot of uh, work that we did around uh, transfer, both there and in in my current position. So that's how that's how I got pulled into this um, amazing group of positive, wonderful people. And you
0: all are very positive. Every email thread I'm on with all of you is like a boost of serotonin. So I have to say you're, you're very positive folks. Um, I want to start with a revisit to some terminology that we started from the very first show. Um, and Jenna, I'm gonna have you kind of give us a little bit more perspective on this to reintroduce folks. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together. I want folks to understand this, um, is that in the white paper, uh, rather than use the term transfer students, even though we're gonna use that a bit today because it, you know, it's just gonna come off my mouth and that's what's gonna happen. But in the paper, it really talks about um, this idea of moving our framing of the students to um, affordable affordability, credit mobility are part of this transfer lingo um, in the paper. Can you talk to us more about those terms, why those terms matter, especially as it relates to kind of framing it for the student experience. So again, that that affordability, credit mobility and transfer and how that all kind of bundles
2: up. Sure, so um, we talk uh, about, rather than talking about transfer students, we often talk about students who transfer or students who transfer credits because so many students who are not currently classified as transfer students actually do transfer in a lot of uh, credits between the institutions that they um, participate in. Um, And for these students, it's really hard for them to get a sense of how quote unquote affordable a particular college or program will be because a lot of times what they see is the the sticker price but there are a lot of factors that contribute to whether that sticker price is actually going to be affordable to you and so you've talked about a lot of those uh, factors on your show before like the difference between published tuition and the actual price that students pay um and the opportunity costs of being in school get versus gaining more work experience during the same time frame but um some of the things that are that we talk about in this paper that are particularly important are around credit mobility because that impacts the number of semesters or the years that you'll have to pay for before you can finish um, so we are really focusing on things about credit mobility and transfer that in, that increase the time or the price either the number of semesters it takes to get your degree or the net price that you're paying for each one of those um, semesters
0: yes. In the last show, we talked about accreditors and how accreditors could potentially get more um, involved in this and have more of an impact. And as I was marinating on our our last two conversations, that idea of uh, how the credit mobility I wish there there was a, you know, how we're always looking at a dashboard. We're always looking at a scorecard. We got to try to do this. I have have mixed feelings about credits, about scorecards. But anyway, I'm asking for a new scorecard. That being said, is I I would love to see campuses actually have this almost scorecard of the credit mobility and how quickly, because you hear a lot Um, It's that time of year. There's graduation ceremonies happening uh, actually today in the city I live in uh, for the high school. And um, it is, you know, you got students who are starting out next year at a community college or make a decision about a place to earn some credits and how, how mobile those credits are. Uh, are often things that we don't talk about. I've actually sent a copy of the podcast over to uh, the college advising office at my daughter's high school to say, you should listen to this, because I think it's important as you're framing this for the students who are going to start at our local community colleges or maybe uh, uh, enlist in the military, what does that actually look like in terms of that credit mobility as they move forward. Um, I want to turn to Marty, and I want to look at some of the urgency and relevance on this topic and why it is so urgent uh, and something we need to be paying attention to right now. According to the paper, at least 39 million Americans have some college credits and have not yet received a degree. 38% of all first-time student transfer institutions with, uh, sorry, first-time students transfer institutions within their first six years Of those, 45% change two or more times. Approximately 34% of high school students take college courses in high school with 88% of high school students offering, uh, high schools offering dual enrollment. 64% of students work while in college and approximately one third of veterans hold a certificate of some kind, but no additional education. That's a lot of stuff that I don't think people really have a, a strong understanding of. And that includes people who work in higher education. So my question, do you believe that this puts the urgency of this white paper um, and the entire compendium at a higher heightened level within higher education? And couldn't you explain for me?
1: Sure, um. I actually really think it does. Now, uh, I have mixed feelings about whether or not the field will take it as such, but I do think that this is the data and the information that we need to be leading in these conversations or leading with in these conversations. Uh, Too often, um, we're acting as gatekeepers, uh, not sort of fully understanding the extent to which that is harming and or mitigating enrollment and participation in higher education. Um, And uh, I feel that in this declining enrollment environment and um, some of the you know, dare I say threats on higher education um, and or or, um, rhetoric around the value of higher education, we need to be stepping up into these spaces, understanding how our past practices have been harming students and are mitigating their full participation, limiting their opportunity cost as it takes them longer times to complete. Um, And we really need to be understanding how our practices are impacting those we're aiming to serve.
0: Uh, Shanna, you have anything to add to that?
1: Um, well,
2: I'd also say that getting a college degree is becoming increasingly important. So, if you look after the Great Recession and the new jobs that were created since then, that that are good jobs. So, those are full time positions with family sustaining wages and benefits. The vast majority of those jobs went to people with bachelor's degrees, um, and so. Having some college or having an associate degree in community college, there's a a really strong reason to transfer and earn your bachelor's degree. Um, But you know, sometimes the 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 challenges um, and the sort of complication of that are are sort of putting up so much static in the way of doing that that we just have a a a lot of sort of lost talent on the way to getting those bachelor's degrees.
0: Absolutely. I want to turn our attention to affordability because I think that this is something that is an absolute misnomer in terms of the, you know, the, the, the word on the street is if you started at, you know, let's use the community college to four-year institution track. If you started a community college uh, it's going to save you money. It's going to be the same amount of time or maybe a little more, but nothing extreme. Your research isn't showing that. Okay. Um, So, Your your report identifies transition points and how these points create disconnects for student learners seeking the transfer. Um, You identify the transition points and highlight how they create this affordability disconnect um, and impact on time and price. So it's taking longer and it's costing more money. Um, And this is super compelling. Um, Explain more to us uh, uh, specifically about these transition points and how they rose to your attention. Um, And I'm going to start with Marty, and then I'm going to go over to to Shana again. Is that in the report, you say these transition points and the affordability disconnects resulted in identification of common challenges and roadblocks, such as lack of information about how students' work and learning uh, will apply to the completion of a degree, lack of sharing of electronic records and transcripts, the lack of uh, CPL policies, prior learning policies, um, and a lack of efficient and unbiased credit evaluations, as well as more. Talk to us more about when you were going through the research, how you found those, and what, what created this kind of moment of, okay, are people just not paying attention, or is it is it more broad? Tell me more about these these transition points and why they became so obvious to you that you had to put them out in the report.
1: Absolutely, um, you know, and uh, uh, I tend to be a little over candid, overly candid. So I'll just name it as I see it, which is no
0: one knows what's uh, in my mug right now, Marty. So right. you, you can be as <laughs> candid as you want.
1: Right. Uh, I, I feel like these are um, known secrets. Yeah. within higher education yeah. and as our uh, amazing board just really um committed to being candid about what the issues are and to um to really appreciating that it's time to roll up our sleeves and tackle the hard things uh and not just create solutions uh you know put solutions in air quotes that sort of cover up the messy realities we began to identify Um, all of the different transition points that really create friction points and or are myths if we aren't doing our due diligence in how we design uh, our transfer pathways and credit mobility um, more particularly. And that is what actually moved us from the conversation from transfer to credit mobility. We've been wrestling with transfer for generations. It's time to talk about how we're accepting or not accepting um, credit mobility. And um, I think the transition points that we identified I think a theme across many of them is the um, inherent bias and or lack of research that justified the ways in which we approach our practices relative to how we count, accept or don't credit. Um, So that was a big wrestling point. And um, we had a lot of like, well, why do we do that? What's it based on? And as we sort of peeled back the layers or, you know, moved the curtain it was, well, it's just been past practice. Um, right, there's not right. a lot of good evidence for it.
0: And it's the, you know, anyone who's a habitual listener to this podcast, Doug's in the audience today. He's one of them. I'm telling you right now, there is that glacial pace of change, of higher education. We always do things this way. I was uh, talking to a former colleague of mine from uh, uh, from one of the colleges I worked at, and he's now currently, he, he called me about uh, my recent blog post where I was talking about, you know, I, I'm this I'm somebody who goes out and says every college needs to have a closure plan, and whether it's your closure or someone else's closure, you have to have a plan, and it was in my blog last week, and I got a ton of response, but he brought up this idea of he's worked in federal government, he's worked in private sector, he's worked in all kinds of different places, and he's like, I really think that this the governance model of higher education just also creates so much glomming on of not being able to get things done Um, and you know this there was a a president a past president of Boston University his name was John Silber not well liked I want to be very clear he was kind of a jerk but he had something that he said that I will tell you right now I'm like it's kind of right higher education is not a democracy Now. That doesn't play well with faculty and it doesn't play well with students at times. But that, that dem- democratic feel of higher ed is what even slows the pace down and you are gonna do in the default mode. As you just said, Marty, this is the way it's always been done. We're not gonna change that. Why mess with it? And in this particular case, if we what we wanna do is provide a pathway to completion we have to change it, we have to change it. Um, Shauna, I wanna bring you in and I wanna talk about the affordability disconnect that as, as a result of these issues, that, that affordability dis- disconnect results in an impact on the student's time in college and the price that they end up paying. Talk to us more about why that ends up happening Talk to us more about what you found out and are we seeing any discrepancies by race, gender, first gen status and state location? So I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but talk to me about a little
2: of that. Well, you know, just as an example of the kind of thing that might discourage students who want to transfer from actually doing it is that they, they have these uh, credits, but it's really hard for them to tell how those credits will apply to different destination colleges and majors. So if they're looking at three or four different places that might be in their immediate area, they really just don't know, often until after they've already paid the acceptance fee at a particular college, how many of their credits are going to apply to what. And so that really discourages a a lot of students. Um, And then if they find out that if their credits don't apply uh, to, to the extent that they thought, um, it might discourage them from persisting to complete their bachelor's degree. And so this, not only, you know, do they have an extended time to degree, but there's also, there's lifetime consequences in terms of their earning power and their ability to pay back students loans if they either don't graduate or if they take longer to graduate. So um, in in one of the studies that um, that I have done with one state, state uh, system, we found that um, eight years after they start college, Students who had to transfer to finish their bachelor's degree um, had depressed earnings compared to their peers who started as as first-time students by about $300 a month, and this is primarily due to the additional time they needed to earn the bachelor's degree and leverage that degree in the labor market because they they were just farther back behind their peers um, just due to that. And historically marginalized students are more likely to start at a community college, they're the ones that are more likely to be harmed by all these flaws in the transfer system. And to the extent that, you know, the flaws are making things confusing and challenging, these challenges tend to fall more heavily on the populations that are already disadvantaged. Um, So for example, completion rates for a bachelor's degree within six years of entering a community college um, are, 10% 10% for black students and 13% for Latinx compared to 21% for white students and 26% for Asian American students. So it's just, yeah, there are really big discrepancies yeah. there.
0: That's a big gap. And and that makes me angry. Um, but it also, uh, I wonder, and I, and I didn't ask you this in, in the prep notes, but I'm wondering either of you saw anything of this with your research of, you know, there's some camp. There's some states where community college has been free for a longer period of time. They decided years ago to go to free community college. Do you see any um, any good work in those states, or in states where they said, okay, we're going to actually make uh make this an effort of not only we're going to do free community college, but we're actually going to create a pathway that is a timely pathway. Any any states doing good work in that regard?
2: So you know if you're going to make a community college free um, and you also want students to earn bachelor's degree you bachelor's degrees you have to fix the pathways between yeah. the two of them because otherwise what you may end up doing and we've seen this in a couple of uh, localities is that students who could go directly into a four-year college say, "Oh but I could go to community college for free right so I'll do that and then I'll transfer but then they never transfer so yeah. um, so there could be some unintended consequences um, yeah. for that kind of policy. So you've got to be thinking about the whole big picture and not just, you know, one small piece of let's make community college more
1: affordable. Right. If I can also. Is that. Oh, go ahead, Marty. No, sorry. Um, I was going to say, you know, this makes me think about California, which is you know community colleges is, is relatively affordable 49 dollars a unit most most times it's free for many community college students they qualify for free tuition um, i think this is where the movement from transfer to credit mobility is critical because of the density of so many of our populations and their higher ed options every yep. transfer pathway is different we've tried to consolidate that and create single pathways but you You don't really see that solving the full problem, uh, in large part because there's always nuance in it. And again, this goes back to those transition points that we identified where, um, because there is latitude for local discretion within each of those transition points, whether it's process or credit, you just see the the promise of it fall apart and then creating Mm -hmm. more confusion for learners as they're trying to navigate those transitions.
0: Absolutely. You know, as I was reading the paper and, I was looking at those transition points and I'm saying if I was a vice president again, I would be sitting here with my, my community and saying, okay, which offices are responsible for that trigger point? What Which offices should we be looking at and what systems do we have in place that are creating these transition, you know, I'm going to call it a speed bump And try to levy out these speed bumps to make sure that we are we are creating the best practice possible. And I think for people who may be listening to this, who may be responsible for orientation activities or transition activities, these points that you've laid out are are a great roadmap to be able to say, okay, what are we doing here? And what you're doing is you've identified them, and you haven't gone, you know, you've given some examples, but broadly. it gives the person who's reading it to say, okay, I can actually, and what, what I like about this section of the paper is that it is actually these digestible bits so that if I'm somebody who's working on a campus and I can say, I can't do all of this, but you can do some of it. And those, those transition points are absolutely where you can you know, take a bite out of it and say, I can actually fix or address some of these issues. In real time. Like some of these things actually are not that big a heavy lift. It's just changing how you are doing some of your business practices um, that can actually move you going in the right direction. And am I being too optimistic? This is open to either of you.
2: (laughs) I'm I'm, I. Go ahead, Sean. I I think that makes makes sense. And I, I, you know, to build on your question earlier about free community college, um, you know, we need to be thinking about things like financial aid from the perspective of the different kinds of students who might be needing yep. to access it because we, the research finds that students who transfer get less institutional aid than new right. first-time students. And in many states, they have they can't access state aid programs. So for example, some states focus their aid programs on full-time students or they apply merit criteria that are based on recent high school performance or they require that students attended the high school in the state. But transfer students, they're mobile, they're often attending part-time, they're returning to college as adults, so they don't have that recent high school performance. Um, And so only three states have financial aid programs that are dedicated to students who transfer and they have pretty low award amounts. So if you're wanting to say, okay, we'll start with free community college and then you can transfer, but you haven't built out a system to allow them to transfer affordably um, and you're, it then and you, they may be getting less financial aid than they would if they started at the four-year college and a less affordable degree for that reason. Like that is sort of shooting yourself in your in your foot. Yeah. But you know, states have not necessarily kind of looked at it from from the, the the default lens to look at first-time freshmen. People don't really think about the sort of alternate uh, the alternate lenses or perspectives.
0: I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Shana, because I think that's where, you know, you've got this, um, you know, we talked about it in, a, in one of the shows earlier, this this uh, series is that idea of the sugar high when it comes to enrollment um, and that, you know, transfer students in terms of the whole transfer model right now is it, it creates a sugar high as far as the enrollment process is concerned from the institution. You're not actually creating a uh, better you know, a uh, uh, business practice moving forward and something that's more sustainable. From a legislator standpoint, and from a, look what we did, X state, we've made community college free. That's a sugar high for the for the student too, because they're saying, or their parents are saying, or whoever's supporting them through this, their families, they've decided to go back to school, you have a whole group of folks who say, free community college, fan fucking tastic pardon my french it's like you know this sounds like the best plan ever but to your point if that is you get it for free but it's actually penalizing you in the long run for time and actually how out, out of pocket cost it ain't free it ain't free
1: well, and this i i just want to jump in because i to your earlier question around the you know, are we being too optimistic about, like, these are things that people can actually tackle and improve right now? Uh, you know, my favorite answer, yes, but no, but no, but yes, right? Because they could, right? People can jump into this right now, and it's a lift, but it's not as shiny as yeah. rolling out a new transfer program that is actually aimed at recruitment, not actually facilitating seamless transfer. And right. so the incentives and the game that folks are playing relative to a focus on transfer is recruitment. Right. And within that larger framework of how I how I maximize my funding for my institution, as opposed to credit mobility, which is much more student centered and really about how do I streamline time to completion, um, which really should be the focus, not the recruitment. But the incentives are misaligned.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, You know,
0: that makes their job so much harder, Marty. Come on. That just just makes it so much harder.
1: Um,
0: So let's talk about recommendations. Uh, I think that first and foremost, anyone who's listening to this, when you listen to the replay, when the replay gets posted, the link to the full white paper is provided. So you have all that information. I would say read the dang thing. It's summertime. We are now in summer. It's the land of like, here's my list of of initiatives i'm gonna get all this stuff done first of all don't kill yourself in terms of how many initiatives you have because you and i both know y'all make a big old list and you get like two things done okay because we forget that people take vacation and all of that that being said this is a good summer read it is a great summer read and it's an easy summer read you will bang through it pretty quick because you'll be enraged. And then you'll get to the end and you'll say, What are we gonna do about it? Okay. This is I am telling you right now, you want a staff development, everyone get back together in August, give them this this to read, and it starts with the cabinet level. So damn it, do this. Okay. Now you've got some great recommendations. And what I love about the recommendations is they are student centered and and honest to God, the whole thing about this whole white paper and all the research that you've done is that it's put the spotlight back on the student, and that the student is the is the should be the focal point here. Um, and so, some of the solutions for campuses are uh, that you've outlined are course equivalencies, automated credit evaluations, dynamic e- educational planning. And comprehensive learner records, and I want to talk about those uh, in more detail. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass it to whoever wants to do which one. So show me your hand if you want to do one. Uh, I want to by a raise of hand. Okay. So let's start with course equivalencies. Who wants to take that one on? And Shanna's kind of putting her hand up. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so. I would say that course equivalency is a, uh, a necessary but not sufficient uh, thing, mm-hmm. a policy to have in place. Um, so, course equivalency basically means that um, ideally across the entire state, um, we know that if you take a psychology 101 course um, at this at any of our you know state colleges, it will translate into the introductory psychology course at any of the other of our community colleges or, or universities. So it's very helpful. And it allows for um, more automated credit evaluation, uh, which we can talk about in a moment. Um, I, I would say though, that it is not necessarily sufficient because sometimes um, there are excellent, very useful courses. That are not just not going to be equivalent to courses at other colleges. Um, you know, community college uh, courses are often more applied and sort of uh, uh, immediately. This is what you will do when you get into the workforce. Whereas um, university um, courses often tend to be more sort of theoretical and helping you think through ideas about how to tackle and apply things. And so they may have. They may be on similar topics, but they're very different kinds of courses. And so making a course equivalency between them doesn't make sense. But that doesn't mean that the first course is useless or right. shouldn't have some application to exactly. the degree at the end. It should not be and in so the also, if, we rely, yeah. if we rely entirely on course equivalency systems, which are helpful, they can also um, sort of undercut our ability to be able to really think more critically about what are the learning outcomes of our degree and which of these learning outcomes um have been satisfied
0: yeah absolutely so let's go on to the automated credit evaluations and shana, i know that you you've tossed that out so if you want to continue to that and then i'll i'll turn the attention to marty for the next two
2: Okay, so um we mentioned in, in the first uh podcast in the series that um at a lot of institutions, not all, uh credits are evaluated manually and sometimes by multiple people in multiple multiple departments looking at different courses. So it can take um one or two months for credits to be evaluated and translated into credit. Um and that's a long time for a student to wait. While they're waiting, um they all uh, the courses that they want might get filled up before they know whether which of the courses they're supposed to be taking this fall. Um, And manual evaluation also makes it possible that um, the evaluator's bias can creep in. So for example, an evaluator might look at Psychology 101 from a university and from a community college and just make an assumption that the one from the community college is not going to be equivalent. Um, And um, only about half of colleges even tell students why their credits were denied for transfer. So there's a lot of room for bias to be there. Um, and so automated credit evaluation can really remove that bias and make it so much more efficient. Um, and so course equivalencies, if you've got a course, a course equivalency framework in place uh, and the technology in place, um, automated credit evaluation becomes very straightforward. Um, but um, again, that does make us tend to lean more on the concept of credit equivalency or course equivalency, yep. which you know has its pros and cons
0: i like this idea because it actually also brings in um the idea of using technology to our advantage and i know it scares people technology scares people you know i went to a webinar last week about chat gpt in the classroom and it was fascinating the level of paranoia that people have i'm like okay folks you know let's let's it's gonna happen so let's just let's figure it out okay um but this is that kind of thing where I'm like, from an administrative standpoint, if we can actually create something that, that is automated, that gives at least students, maybe if you feel very strongly that you can't have a, a final read on what classes someone will accept, an institution will accept. Now, this is also me saying, I don't agree with that. The destination campuses should be able to tell you up front what we're gonna take. Like, that's something I just, I don't understand why people aren't doing that. But that being said, if there was a way to take that heavy lift off the, the manual aspect of the evaluation uh, of these credits, that to me is just, it almost turns it into a self-service. And it and that at least gives the student an idea of, okay, here's what I got to deal with um, and uh, and that sort of thing. It's kind of like when you go online and you say, I think I want to get a mortgage. Well, plug in your salary. It's not exact. You know, it's not going to be exact. All right, some people think it's going to be exact, but it's not exact. But the, at least it gives you an idea. Well, we should be doing more of that, not this. Like, oh, it's going to have to take six months to get your your credit uh, situation set, uh, figured out, and you're like, okay, well, I could be doing a lot of other stuff right now. Um, Marty, I want to talk to you about the dynamic educational planning. That sounds like a very fancy term, and I don't know what that. Tell me more about what that means, and because sure. dynamic is not something most of our colleagues are. So go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I have so many you thoughts on that. You don't have to confirm
0: also. or deny. Yes. <laughs>
1: Um, so really being able to have fluidity and flexibility in how we think about educational planning, um, both given where students are coming from, what they've acquired. We talked about veterans credits and certificates and, and other things that may not be exactly Um, you know, a community college transcript. I think even that's a little more straightforward than translating from employment experiences uh, and proficiencies. And so how do we have more educational planning tools and resources that allow for that flexibility and fluidity and really accommodate credit mobility? Um, The thing I would point to though, and I'm so glad you brought up AI because that's what was swirling in my mind, the chat GPT and whatnot. All of these can fall into the, we're going to engage in process improvement. Right. Um, But that's still oriented around transfer. Right. Um, And so the comprehensive learner records, I feel like really sort of then all of it, if we but that one in particular, how do we begin to think about what we're protecting Mm. in our transfer, you know, um, policies, practices, beliefs? What are we protecting? Because I think often we've been we've been in the right to fail era where it's our job to judge who's worthy. Uh, And who gets in and who doesn't versus how do we facilitate and how do we think about the assets that we're bringing that students are bringing to the table, but also what's the end game goal. Students are not leaving higher ed with a degree and then not learning anything ever again. And so in a knowledge economy, we have to be thinking about what are we setting people up for. And is it really that specific course or content And should these be process improvement strategies or should these be transformational? Let's rethink what we're doing through these policies and practices um, and start protecting learner journey and not necessarily protecting us.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's the important thing is the process until we really take a look at our processes, really peel back and say, what are we trying to get out of this? We we're not going to be able to change the the whole dynamic of the situation and the student the students are going to continue to lose out um, and it's 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 really criminal at this point and we've talked about this in all um, in the last two episodes we're going to bring it up again higher education right now in terms of trust in higher education is at an all time low we have to make every effort we can to not impact the quality of what people are getting in terms of lightening up the quality or loosening up the quality we want to keep the quality heightened we want to we want to be able to say attending a university community college getting a degree is got this this whole other level of benefit but we have to prove it to people right now we're doing a, a lousy job proving it um, and to your point, Marty, this idea, and Shauna, you brought something up to it again, uh, very similar, this idea of it's like up to the student to prove to us that they're worthy is not a way to build trust. It is absolutely not that, and and that's, uh, it's infuriating. Um, as we're looking at the states, and we talked about this a little bit earlier about the free community college uh, aspect and, and how that's, that's the, the, the sexy thing. Uh, but we really have to do is make sure that these students are finishing up it on time. Uh, the state legislatures specifically can have a role in this by providing incentives and statewide tools. And you talked about this a bit in the paper. Uh, can you tell us more, and I'm gonna turn this to Shana, uh, tell us more about what that might look like um, and then we'll get into a follow-up question.
2: Sure, well, one thing they can do is to um, help build the policy and the technology infrastructure for more automation of course credit. So um, I'm in Ohio. We started building statewide course equivalency back in the the 90s. Um, And so over time, we have developed a very sort of collaborative framework across all of the state's public community and four-year colleges where um, disciplinary groups of faculty meet regularly to review the course learning outcomes for um, the sort of statewide learning outcomes for specific courses. So, for example, if we go back to introductory psychology, there is a set of statewide learning outcomes. And as long as each institution is meeting at least 70 percent of those learning outcomes for that course, and then, of course, they can sort of flex around that to, to sort of match with the specifics um, that, of their university and or their community college and their, their students. Um, as long as they're meeting that 70% threshold, their course is certified as um, being equivalent to any other in the uh, state system. And so that makes it um, and, and and the trust that is built that allows that to happen is from those faculty panels and the um, faculty getting to know each other across the state, getting to recognize that yes, we all have the same passion, the same care about our students and about the rigor of their learning outcomes. Um, And so this makes it relatively easy for universities like mine that are at a large scale to build or buy the technology to automate um, our course evaluations. But there are a lot of small colleges in the state that can't afford it. So Mm. states might also have a role in helping colleges um, for example, like negotiating a statewide licensing agreement that allows any college in the state to use a particular tool for reduced cost, mm-hmm. um, and they can also help build a data infrastructure that can right. help us see like how well is transfer working, who's doing a great job, and then helping to communicate about the practices and sort of support those practices at other institutions in the state.
0: So let me ask a question, and I might be getting too granular on this, or or whatever. But I think what what's interesting to me about this, anyone who's ever had to deal with a articulation agreement or developing an articulation agreement knows how painful that is. I mean, like, honest to God, I, it, it like, I want to just pull out an eyeball. So with that being said, in Ohio right now, is there still a need for articulation agreements within the state institutions? Or because you're all uh, part of this, this program, does that uh, negate that need,
2: yeah, as long as you're public in Ohio there's not really a need now there are some courses that are not part of the state equivalency system because they're not um, they're not very common. Um, I'd say the vast majority of the kinds of courses that get transferred are covered by the statewide agreements, but there you know there are occasions there's going to be some that aren't and so there may be articulation agreements around those. Um, But we've basically simplified it here to say, okay, have we gotten this course before? How did it apply then? We're just going to build that rule. It's just going to automatically apply that way from now on.
0: Fantastic. Um, So I want to ask Marty this follow-up question. You also provide an example of how state incentives and good policies can create a successful transfer environment, and you specifically uh, looked at Arizona State University. Can you tell us more about the ASU
1: program? I cannot, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, oh, darn, that question's coming to me. Um, I uh, I can tell you about California, uh, okay, specifically, go
2: ahead.
1: Um, and who, who did work with ASU to try to figure out our uh, transfer policies. Um, but I, I think... You know, the state incentives and good policies, it's 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 complex and, and dynamic uh, because it's a good policy when implemented with fidelity and yeah. good intents. It can yeah. be challenging when the policies are structured in a way where it, it provides an opt-out um, sort of vehicle, right? Yeah. Uh, so um, I think we've seen a number of policies in California oriented around um, transfer pathways, uh, common course numbering. Um, you know, single, single GE pathways. Um, and, you know, I don't want to, I, I hate to center California. However, 116 campuses, community college campuses, 23 and, yeah. and nine, uh, four year, it, it yeah. really is. And so yeah. it, it, so many of the challenges that other states are facing, we have in pockets, and then comprehensively. Um, so I think as folks are thinking about policies, I think there's an element also of needing to understand how the policy gets rolled out and what are the data points that we should be capturing sort of similar to has it made a change in the time from uh, application uh, for equivalency to actual outcome of equivalency. So much of that data is often hidden. um, And so we're unable to really see how the policies are impacting actual practice, even though some may be compliant uh, as it's uh, as it's moving forward.
0: Fantastic. I I think that there's also, you know, as it's Pride Month and there's uh, different uh, opportunities out there for LGBTQIA students to find uh, LGBTQIA friendly campuses. You know, the Pride Index is one of them. It's become a more uh, robust uh, process and that sort of thing. And I think that one of the things that, that I would like to see out of this is even finding something where you say, okay, look, the campus doesn't want to get on this idea of uh, being uh, transfer uh, friendly um, and that sort of thing. What what metrics are maybe out there that uh, will allow for someone, a third party to say, look, we're we're ranking you and you're not doing a great job, uh, even starting with some of these state institution um, environments to say, we're going to start with states. And then we're going to go to the the privates to see what actually happens there. But I think that there's a there may be a value there. There may be some entrepreneurial opportunity for folks. Um, you mentioned in the report in various locations, ACRO, which is the the registrars professional organization. Um, and you know, I've been to an ACRO conference. That that's that's a that's a fun time. Um, but that, no. But in all seriousness, I love I love my registrars. Um, but that, that organization is one where it makes a lot of sense that ACRO be brought in on this. And they didn't consult on the project, um, but you did specifically call them out in various locations. Um, talk to us about you know ACRO and maybe some other organizations that maybe uh, if you're someone who's listening to this podcast who's very active in ACRO, who is very active in other professional organizations, where can someone who's a member of a professional organization kind of heighten people's awareness of this of this report um, and see if it can actually, you know, kind of start that domino effect of this is something we need to be paying attention to. I love your kind of gut response to that, either of you.
1: I'm, I'm happy to jump in and um, Shauna can take us home uh, with with some brilliant answers. I go back to those transition points. Uh, all of those, many of those hit the registrar's uh, desk in terms of processes. And so even just starting by taking a look of who's bearing the burden in this process? Do we have those those metrics around, are we tracking or capturing what is time to completion or time to processing? What can I look at that where we could make some micro changes right now? Uh, because I have, A point of authority in my operational processes? And how do I even use this to begin conversations within my institution to begin to question how are we doing things? Why are we doing things? Who is it benefiting? Who is it harming? I think that that's an immediate, I can take this right now and go use it, which was what we were hoping folks would do with this. Um, I think the other piece is how do we pull in all the you know, the folks that we don't typically think of as tied to this issue, um, your finance folks, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, your enrollment management folks, um, faculty, obviously.
0: Yeah, I think another organization. Oh, go ahead, Shauna, and then I'll I'll jump in.
2: I think ACRO is a really good um, example uh, of a professional association um, that can do this work well uh, because they've conducted surveys with their membership that's been really useful in identifying some of the issues to fix at the institutional level. So for example, I, I cited earlier uh, the one to two month time frame at many institutions that came from an ACRO survey. And that's a super useful point to like, you may not know as a registrar that it's taking one to two months. You have to fill out the survey and you ask your people and they're like, oh yeah, it's one to two months. And you might be like, excuse me? <laughs> Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. And then you yeah. look at the other survey results and you see some other institutions are doing it in two days. Right. And then you might think, how? How are they yeah, doing right, that? Why are right. we doing this? And so it can really help to start to drive some thinking. And then ACRO has also developed best practice guidelines and a community of practice around transfer and a designation to recognize institutions in terms of transfer. And I think it's really important for professional associations to do this kind of work because they're the ones that are working directly with the people, as Marty Marty pointed out, the people who are doing the work on the ground. And helping those people encourage changes in their daily practice can sometimes be a lot more direct and effective than, than a state policy that gets filtered through multiple layers and, and, and interpreted in various ways by people who don't understand the work on the ground before it gets to the people who are actually supposed to implement it.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that there are, in addition to ACRO, which I think has some very specific, you know, this is the transactional aspect as well as the, the process aspect. But ACRO is, I think, uh, obviously a good first organization to, to key in with. NACAC, which is the admissions organization, they need to be part of this conversation as well. And then I would also say to think a little bit broadly is Nakubo, which is the business officers, because ultimately they're the budget people. And if they're aware of this, they're going to say. And, and and I will say the people I know who've been in the budget office, they're very, very uh, pragmatic. Like they are like, all right, like this is great. And they're also, I mean, I'm going to do a big sweeping swath here. Every business officer I've ever worked with is cheap as the day is long in their personal life. Okay. And all you have to do is say to them, what if this was your kid? And they're going to say, absolutely. We got to fix this. People are spending too much money. Um, and so this is just as an opportunity for you to pull in that group. Um, speaking of pulling in a group, one thing we haven't talked about in any of the shows is the U S department of education. And if there's anything that we could be doing to press the USDOE on this, and if so, you know, it, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you all as a last thought on this is if there was like a perfect outcome of this report, okay, what would you want that perfect outcome to be, okay? Would you want uh, to be able to get this in front of the USDOE? Would you want to make this something that every state needs to have legislation on i want to give you this fantasy moment all right so i want you to think this through i also want to give a shout out to doug who also brought up that as we're thinking about organizations we want to pull in you want to do nakata which is the academic advisors because ultimately they're the ones who who frankly get handed the student and what they have to do in the long run so thank you doug for your for your feedback on that so uh, who's ready to go down the, the perfect rainbow trail in terms of what you hope is the outcome of this? Uh, Sean or Marty, you go, you tell me who wants to go first.
1: I'll jump in. Um, I don't know if it's my perfect world. Um, I, I, so when I think about the, the Department of Ed and, and, and what we need from them, um, I go back to the topic of this paper, which is financial Right, uh, the student finances and the cost of all of this for our populations. And I think about the challenges of financial aid and in some part why we even highlighted ACRO because there is this orientation towards compliance within our educational institutions and this fear of punishment or repercussions from the federal government uh, and losing access to financial aid. I think we have to protect consumers, but we also have to create space for flexibility and fluidity and for us to be able to adapt as higher ed organizations and pull back some of that fear. Um, and so I feel like that needs a new accountability compact as we as our institutions are really challenged to transform and operate in new ways. So both creating that incentive, but also that, that ability to learn and adapt as we go um, without this sort of, I'm going to be the, um, the VP who loses our financial aid. Uh, you know, access or compliance. Um, and so I, I think there's a something in that um, that I would love to see emerge that at least begins to get us down that road.
0: Right. Excellent.
1: Yeah. And uh, I, I, this is
2: obviously not not all that uh, one could possibly want. But the first thing that came into my head is um, is automatically thinking of transfer students when you think of types, key types of students. So um, you know, at this institution and at many others, um, you know, when we thought about our, our different types of students, we often sort of said, okay, uh, underrepresented minority students, low income students, first generation students, those uh, undergraduate, graduate. Like those are sort of our, our main ways of classifying students. And within the past, you know, five years or so, we've started saying transfer students is one of the key things that we need to always be looking at. We always need to be looking at, not only how does this affect students of color, low-income first-gen students, how does this affect transfer students? What does this look like to transfer students? And just always having that in our heads. And you can tell when you look at, you know, we mentioned financial aid earlier, we can tell when you look at state and federal policy that they are not thinking about transfer students in most of their policies. So for example, IPEDS is the federal database that collects data on higher education inputs and outcomes for almost every college in the country. It has some information on transfer students, but not really a lot. Um, So there's not much in the way of differentiated or detailed information about the demographics of transfer students and the outcomes of transfer students, the kinds of information that could be really helpful for research and for benchmarking. Um, So just sort of adding the transfer sort of thing into your standard toolbox of how you think about and disaggregate and, and, um, and look through student eyes, I think would be really helpful for like every role at a college and at a you know state coordinating board um and a a state legislature and a federal government so
0: absolutely you know you you both have given me a lot of optimism uh and also anxiety but but i will say a lot of optimism because i think that the first way to fix something is call attention to it and that's what you all have done you have called you have called attention to something that's pervasive in the academy that we need to address, and this is really about the long-term uh, impact on the students. So I want to thank you. I want to thank uh, Shauna. I want to thank uh, Marty. I want to thank everyone who had anything to do with this uh, with this report. Uh, Laura, who, Laura, who is uh, the coordinator, but never made any time on on camera, but she she is just a force to be reckoned with in the background. Um, and really just did an amazing job uh, pulling this whole thing together. Um, and, uh, you know, I really am uh, hopeful that uh, this report finds its hands in the right, uh, in the right uh, people. Uh, so I want to thank you both. I want to wish everybody a great summer. And you are listening to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. It is a live audio broadcast aired and recorded on the fireside platform i am your host dr laura debo and i thank you for listening be sure to subscribe to my newsletter what's up in the academy the number one higher education newsletter on the substack platform and follow me here on fireside on post.news and linkedin and you will see a link to subscribe in the replay so thanks everybody have a wonderful summer you may be seeing me here there and everywhere, but we're going into summer sabbaticals. So I'm putting my feet up and I'm going to be writing and doing my thing. But keep an eye. Make sure you're following me here because if any shows come up, you'll get notified right here on Fireside. Have a great one, everybody.